Welcome to the Gracefully Refined Podcast. I'm your host, Morgan Redfern, and I am so glad you decided to tune in. Here on the Gracefully Refined Podcast, I tackle topics that not only will challenge you in your Christian walk, but will also encourage, uplift, and remind you of the infinite and indescribable hope that we have through Jesus Christ. I am so excited to dive into God's Word with you. There are so many amazing truths that are still applicable in our daily lives, and I cannot wait to discuss them with you. So friend, grab your Bible and coffee, and let's get into the Word. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome back for another episode here on the Gracefully Refined Podcast. I am so incredibly excited for today's topic and message. Oh my goodness, it is going to be so encouraging to us as believers. And it's something that I have studied and looked at months and months and months ago. So I'm really excited to finally bring be bringing what I studied and what I looked at to the podcast. Um, I am really excited for this topic. I really think that it's going to help us with our walks with God, but also understand who God is. If you've already read the title of this podcast, it's talking about meeting the holy God. So we've always said holy that we serve the holy God, we read the holy Bible, but what does that mean? What does that look like? Who is God? Like we know Jesus through scripture, but who is God the Father? Who is God the Trinity? So I want us to look at this from this account in scripture because it is just so fascinating to me. And I had read through Isaiah before. Oh, I guess I haven't said what we're studying yet. We're going to be looking at the account in Isaiah 6 of this account of seeing God for the first time, as well as this is when Isaiah is called into ministry. So we get this firsthand account of what it would have been like to meet God, to be in the presence of the holy and almighty God through his revelation and through his vision. And it's just incredible. I'm so excited to dive into this with you guys. But before we do, I just wanted to say, I hope you guys are having an incredible start to your week. I know if you're listening to this on a Monday, Mondays tend to be really dreary and we all dislike them with a passion. And so I really hope that this is something that will encourage you and maybe get you pumped up for the rest of your week as you get into your own quiet times and your own study time with the Lord. Um, But I really just could not go any further without addressing this topic and I'm just so incredibly excited. So I hope you have your coffee and your Bible with you. Um, If not, I will be reading straight from scripture today as we are studying this. But I am just incredibly excited for what God is going to do today as we talk about this. So as I previously said, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 6 and really breaking it down. Um, I studied Isaiah a few months ago. And this chapter just really stood out to me like I've previously said. Um, And I love, like I also said that we just get this preview of what it's like to see our holy and mighty God seated on the throne in heaven. And he's not the only one who has seen God. So what I love about the ones who have seen God is that they have all witnessed almost the same scene or the same type of depiction of heaven whenever they've recorded it within the scriptures. So one thing that we know as Christians and believers is that God's word is inherently true. There's no error. It is We believe that it is the breath and the breathed word of God through inspiration, through different writers. And so with that being said, we can't just take one account as being factual or true. There's always normally witnesses. And I love that God does this. That way we can have no doubt that his word is true and that it's not just some made up story because this story is absolutely crazy. So, I mean, if you only had this story in scripture, it'd kind of be like, okay, like, can we really believe that? You know, but there are so many other um, 
depictions and perspectives of the same account just in their own type of revelation. So, for example, Job, David, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, John, and several others all recorded seeing heaven either through visions or physically being taken into heaven to convene with God. How cool is that, y'all? Like, I don't even know how I would be able to um, imagine it or even stomach it if I had gone through those things. But um, today we're only going to be looking at the account in Isaiah, but I really encourage you to go um, look at the accounts from these other people through scripture because their accounts are just as fascinating. But I love Isaiah's account just because, like I said, I was studying through Isaiah a few months ago. But before we get into the word, I wanted to ask you a few questions. So the first one being, how do you view God? Do you see him as unapproachable or distant? Do you see him as approachable and just go with the flow? And if you were able to stand before God, how do you believe that you would react? For me personally, my view of God whenever I was much younger was that he was harsh and unapproachable, that he enjoyed punishing people. I grew up kind of in the Bible Belt, and so a lot of the churches growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, mid-2000s, whenever I was a kid and a teenager, they really pushed this narrative, um, especially when I was more younger versus when I was older, that God was just you know, vengeance, um, especially the God of the Old Testament. You know, we don't see this loving side of God until the New Testament through Jesus. But for me, seeing God as a whole, I saw him as harsh and that he just liked to punish people um, and that you had to maintain this utmost respect in almost a robotic way because you wanted to be seen as set apart. That way you would be worthy enough to be in his presence, right? My prayer life for a long time also reflected this way of thinking as well. And God is most definitely worthy of our utmost respect and reverence, and it should not be taken lightly. But there is more to our God that I would like to point out as we study through his word today, okay? So like I said, we're going to be going through Isaiah 6. So if you have your Bible with you, be sure to open it up. Um, If you don't, no worries. I will be going through it and breaking it down. You may hear Elisha, my newborn, in the background talking a little bit. I'm actually recording this during his nap time and my daughter's nap time. So there may be at one point in this podcast that I have to pause and stop recording and then come back um, to soothe him or my daughter. So there may be at some point in here an awkward pause, but if it is, it's okay. It's just an editing thing. I am not the best technical editor of podcast audio. And so for some reason, I cannot get the awkward pauses to go out if I have to edit an audio. So that's why I prefer to do it all in one take. So sometimes if you hear just background noise, that is why. But like I said, if he starts crying or something, I will have to pause. And so um, just wanted to make you aware of that. That way it's not a glitch. It's not your phone. It's probably just the software that I use to edit Um, does not allow me to take out the weird, awkward pauses in between segments. So, um, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and be in Isaiah 6, and we're going to be going through verses 1 through 4 first, and then we're going to break it down and talk about, because y'all, there is so much to unpack, unpack, I'm sorry, I cannot talk today apparently, um, in this section. So, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. 
The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Okay, so that is verses 1 through 4, if you don't have your physical Bible in front of you. But, wow. Okay, so we need to go back to verse 1 and talk about why he would have mentioned about King Uzziah. So, King Uzziah, who is also known as King Azariah of Judah, began his reign whenever he was only 16 years old, and he actually ruled for 52 years. So, he's probably one of the longest living kings recorded in the history of kings at that point in this timeline of scripture. Um, we see records of scripture in King Uzziah's reign in 2 Chronicles 26 and 2 Kings 15. King Uzziah was a mighty man and a great king. He was a brilliant leader that led Israel through many military victories. 2 Kings 15.3 says this about him. He did all that was right in the Lord's sight according to all that his father Amaziah had done. King Uzziah was famous. Tales of him spread as far as Egypt. He feared and revered God. But just because he was good and a noble king, that does not mean by any means that he was perfect. For as much as he is known for all the good he did, he is also remembered for his tragic end. And you might be saying, what? So how could this good king have a tragic end? Well, let me tell you about what he did. So King Uzziah decided to burn incense on the altar of the Lord, which was only to be done by the ones that the Lord had, appo had appointed for these tasks within the tabernacle. And so unless you were a Levite, the Levites were, were given the task of keeping up the tabernacle and being able to go into the holies of holies and to burn incense and do all the things. They That was their heritage from the Lord. Um, and we see that back in Exodus and... Um, uh, Leviticus, like, you know, Levitical law, that was all about the Levites um, and what they were commanded to do by the Lord whenever it was part of this setting, right? Well, King Uzziah didn't do that and didn't go th through protocol, so he burnt incense on the altar of the Lord, and God was, became really upset with him over this and struck him with leprosy. So he ended up suffering alone and died as a leper for his disobedience. King Uzziah was beloved by the people, and when he passed away, they most likely were deeply grieved. I mean, who wouldn't miss this so beloved king who was such a great leader, um, even though he had sinned in the end? Like, he, people loved this king. And so, it's for this reason that some scholars believe that Isaiah began this chapter by addressing it as a time when this mighty king would have died. He probably felt discouraged by his death, and he may have even wondered where God was in all of this. Then, in the next section of Isaiah, we see that God is sitting on his throne in heaven. Not just, like, in heaven, but, like, he's actually sitting on a throne. So, why this would have been significant is only sovereign kings sat on thrones. And it was as if God was trying to show Isaiah that he was still in charge. It was like God was saying, hey, bro, Isaiah, yeah, I'm still ruling and I'm alive and well sitting on my throne. Even though this earthly king that you loved is gone. So, it's also fair to mention that others who previously saw God in their visions or being t taken up into heaven, they also saw this vision of God's throne and God sitting on the throne, not just a God in heaven. So, that is very, very important for us to look at. Um, but it also says this about God, that his robe or the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And so, the train on a robe was meant to actually signify that you were more important than other people of the working class. Like if you had a train behind you, because they weren't very easy to maneuver, they were really more for looks and just 
elevating your status. Um, it meant that you didn't have to work and that others had to serve you and help you maneuver and walk around in this robe or this train. So it's for this reason that sovereign leaders wore them because they were being seen as important. And the longer your train was as a leader, the more important or honorable you were. So whenever it says that God's robe literally filled the entire temple in heaven, it's ultimately saying that God is so honored and so dignified and that he is ultimately the holy and ultimate sovereign leader of everything, of all creation. And so, yeah, that's a really long robe and train, right? So if we go on and move on to verse 2, the term seraphim or cherubim actually means the burning ones. And so we know these to be angels, right? Like that's what we call them. But in scripture, they called them the seraphim or the cherubim. And so they're called the burning ones because it actually appeared as if they were literally on fire. Um, Both Ezekiel and John also describe seeing these seraphim and that they were creatures with six wings. Reading the descriptions of these beings definitely paints a scary sight And it's literally no wonder that anytime they appeared to anyone on earth, the first thing they said was, do not be afraid. I used to kind of wonder this as a kid. I'm like, why are they saying don't be afraid? Is it because they just randomly popped up and out of nowhere and they're there? No, it's probably because they literally were the scariest looking creatures you could come across at the point, right? Um, I probably, no lie, would have ran and hid if one of these things popped up in front of me. But... um, They had six wings. So I want to talk about what these wings signify and why, like what their purposes are. Because it's not um, just a um, description here that Isaiah wants to paint a picture of. He wants us to understand and recognize their function and their role within heaven. So it says that two wings would cover their faces. And the reason that scholars believe this is, is so they could not look upon the face of God. And I believe this too, because in Exodus thirty three twenty it says, the Lord said to Moses, you cannot see my face for a man is shall, for no man shall see my face and live. So this must've been the same reality for the seraphim because they use two of their wings to cover their faces. They are and were created by God just as we were. So, um, we then see that they have another two, a set of two wings covering their feet. And it's kind of like weird when I first saw this, like, why are they like obsessed with the feet? You know, why do they want their wings to cover their feet? Like, it's kind of weird, right? But from what scholars believe from studying it is that they covered their feet as a way to be humble so that not even the most humble part of their body was seen or uncovered in the presence of God. So four of the wings are meant to show humility and respect of the Almighty God, while the remaining two wings were used to fly. Scholars believe that this was a sign of their willingness to serve and be useful to God as his messengers. Charles Spurgeon also put it this way, For the seraph remembers that even though sinless, he is yet a creature, and therefore he conceals himself in token of his nothingness and unworthiness in the presence of the thrice holy one. And so pretty much what Charles Spurgeon is talking about is that their humility before before the Almighty God. And when it says the thrice holy one, if you're a Christian, we believe in the Trinity. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that with that being said, Isaiah would have seen the thrice holy God, right? Um, moving on to verse three and four, the seraphim are proclaiming God's holiness to one another. They exclaim, holy, 
holy, holy. And so we actually, in our English language, lose so much of the incredible intensity of the meaning and what this would have meant in their language um, as far as like what the Hebrew language. So just to break it down, in the Hebrew language, whenever something is communicated through repetition, it's supposed to signify its intensity. So like in other words, if a word or phrase was said more than once, it was like saying, hey, this is really important, so pay attention. An example of this is when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he'd go on and say whatever it is that he would say. Jesus often said that phrase, truly, truly. Um, and that was for them to know as an audience, hey, you really need to pay attention to what I'm saying. So for the seraphim to say holy three times meant that this was supposed to be incredibly important. And who were they calling holy? God seated on his throne. Scholars believe that the seraphim saying holy three times were also because God is not one, but three in one, the Trinity. So the God we serve is the triune God, or also known, as I've said, the Trinity. Um, we have God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and then God the Holy Spirit. The definition of holy is apartness or set apart. So whenever we say we, we worship the holy God, we're saying we worship the God who is set apart or who is apart. So... God is unlike anything or anyone that we could ever meet or imagine. For example, as Christians, we are called to be holy or set apart for the sake of Christ. But what is God set apart from? Dear friend, God is set apart from creation because he was not created. He is set apart from humanity. He is divine and mankind was created in his image. We see this in Genesis in a commentary I once read on this, the writer said that holiness is the characteristic of God's being, not just an aspect of it. God is holy, holy, holy. God is above everything. He is unlike anything and anyone that we will ever come into contact with. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-encompassing, loving, compassionate. And you could just go on the down the list of what God is. God is the ultimate because he is. It makes him worthy of all of our praise. And as the seraphim sang about the holiness of God, it was so powerful that the doorpost shook from their praise. Friend, when was the last time we worshiped God so powerfully that it shook the doorposts? It also goes on to say that the temple was filled with smoke. Um, in the Old Testament, we see this representation of a cloud of smoke or um, just a cloud in general. And there's several examples of this in Exodus. And this would have represented God's presence among them, like God's presence being fully there. So most scholars believe that whenever they saw smoke in heaven, it was just like a sign that God was there. So now we're going to go ahead and move on and go on to verses 5 through 8. So... Um, Beginning in verse 5. Um, sorry, I had to resituate Elisha. He has joined us for this segment. So beginning in verse 5, it says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies, then one of the seraphim flew to me with his hand, in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. 
He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Oh my goodness, that is such a powerful section of scripture. Remember when I asked you earlier what you would do or say if you were standing in the presence of God? Well, we see a firsthand account of what it's like when humanity is able to meet and stand in front of God face to face. Isaiah could only see his sinfulness. Whenever we are in God's presence, we always become more aware of how sinful we truly are and how desperately we need him to save us. You know, I love Charles Spurgeon, so I'm going to use another Charles Spurgeon quote, if I can speak correctly today. And he says, God will never do anything with us until he has first of all undone us. Isaiah was a mess before the Lord. He was undone. Some translations said that he was ruined. He was right where most of us are whenever we finally encounter God through the Holy Spirit. We are a mess. We are undone because we realize we are sinful. We are not holy or good. We are creations that betrayed their creator. Isaiah saw his ultimate need for God's redemption because without it, he was broken. Isaiah also knew the depth of his depravity came from his words. Not just his words, but the words of his people, Israel. So he knew that he needed to be cleansed. He confessed his sins openly before the holy God. And the seraphim then brought live coals with tongs from the altar to Isaiah and placed the live coal on his mouth. So a live coal is a coal that is still hot. And this coal apparently was so hot that the angel could not even carry it with its hands, but instead had to use a tong and then place it on the part where Isaiah said and admits his corruption. Many scholars believe that the tabernacle that God commissioned for them to build on earth is actually a replica or a humanized version of the altar and temple that is in heaven. Literally bringing heaven down to earth in a sense. It is why God is able to go and dwell in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. I believe Jackie Hill Perry once made a statement regarding the subject saying that the throne is for God while the altar is for us. For cleansing and purifying. You see, God had a calling for Isaiah But Isaiah could only be then called if he was first purified and cleansed of his sin. It is after this point that we see God speak. He asked, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I find this so interesting because God did not say, Isaiah, you are now cleansed. I have a job for you to do. Instead, God simply asked a question. Whom shall I send? He asked because he still desired to have someone who was willing and had a willing spirit and heart to take him up on his offer. And this is what Isaiah said when God asked, Here I am, send me. God will never force us to do anything in his will. But he asks, but when he asks and wants you to do something that is in his will for him, what will your answer be, friend? Are you going to answer enthusiastically like Isaiah did 
or will you hesitate waiting for someone else to say, here I am? God desires to have those who love him to serve him. It does not mean that we will all be called to other countries or to be pastors, but in the area that God calls us, are we willing to serve him above all? Once Isaiah responded, God then responds in verse 9, Go. Isaiah's call was not joyful. And let's go ahead and read the rest of the chapter because I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But it is so incredibly exciting. So beginning in verse 9, so we just left off where he had said, Here I am, send me. And he, God, replied, Go and say to these people, Keep listening and do but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, Until the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving a great emptiness in the land. Through a tenth, I'm sorry, though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when filled. The holy seed is the stump. So here Isaiah is being purified. And being cleansed in the presence of the holy God. And God asks who he could send. And Isaiah replies and says, here I am. And then he's waiting for his call that God has for him. And God called Isaiah to be a prophet to his people. Knowing that they would not listen to Isaiah. Knowing that they would not repent or turn back. Yet, God still sent Isaiah to be their messenger. And to warn them of what was going to come because of their disobedience. Although Isaiah's calling was difficult, it was not without hope. His message to these people would be tales of woe if they did not repent and turn back to their creator. But because God is all-knowing, he knew that they would not repent until they were persecuted and that there was destruction. Then there would be hope for the remnant who might choose to turn back to God. Friend, God is holy and is worthy of our praise. Studying this chapter truly reminded me of how sinful I am and how I daily need Jesus to cleanse me of my unrighteousness. I want to close this episode by asking you again, if you were to stand before God, what would you say? When he calls you, are you going to be willing to go even if that calling is difficult like Isaiah's? Remember this, that even though his ministry was hard, he had hope for them through the prophecies of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah who would rescue us from our own destruction. There was purpose within Isaiah's calling. There is purpose within your calling, friend. God has a plan for each one of us on this earth, but he is not going to force it upon us. He uses those of us who are willing to say, Here I am, Lord. Psalm 91 verses 1 through 2 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust.
thank you for tuning in to the Gracefully Refined podcast. I hope that through this episode, you are challenged, encouraged, and reminded of the infinite and indescribable hope that is found in Jesus, our Savior. If you do not follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram under the handle Morgan Redfarin. That is spelled M-O-R-G-A-N-E-R-E-D-F-E-R-I-N, where I post Jesus-loving content even more. I pray you have an incredible rest of your week, and I will see you in the next episode.